0: This is an excerpt from the Stanford University website, celebrating his 125th anniversary. The early years were difficult, as even the Stanford's wealth proved inadequate to their vision. After her husband's death, Jane Stanford kept the fledgling university open through her leadership. The 1906 earthquake dealt a further blow. But they failed to mention one thing. This is Who Killed Jane Stanford, the podcast. On February 28, 1905, her last words were,
1: May God forgive me my sins. Or maybe, Get me a doctor. I have been poisoned. Oh, this is a horrible death to die. Picture this. Jane Stanford is in Honolulu, Hawaii. She's recently arrived with her personal secretary, Bertha Berner. It's a beautiful, sunny day, and the two are on a picnic. Bertha describes the scene in her memoir. We found the picnic place a lovely spot. It was mild weather, and we seated Mrs. Stanford comfortably with a tree behind her.
0: Wow, I could go for that right now.
1: And Jane has been by all counts enjoying her time in Honolulu. She's waiting eagerly for some mail to arrive from California.
0: She's even singing on the carriage ride to the picnic, naming mountains, eating a ton of food.
1: This consumption does concern Bertha, however. But spirits are high, and she's having fun.
0: And, as all good days must, the day comes to an end. They head back to the hotel, and Jane retires for the night, changing her clothes and taking her medicine.
1: And then Bertha and another maid are called to Jane's room by urgent cries for help. Bertha! May! I am so sick! And when they get there, they find Jane convulsing in a chair.
0: She's desperately calling for a doctor.
1: Run for a doctor! I have no control over my body. And they get this Dr. Humphreys, and when he gets there, she's stiff and frantic. She's calling for her stomach pumped. I need my stomach pumped. They're trying to
2: revive her, but um, they are unfortunately unsuccessful, and she passes away.
0: And that's where the real story begins.
1: So what? How did she die? Well, we talked to Natalie Johnson, Stanford grad student and archives researcher for the initial investigation. That's who you just heard.
2: The coroner's report did conclude that it was potentially death by poisoning.
0: Poisoned? So she was murdered?
1: Yeah, she was murdered. Meanwhile, news of Jane's murder has reached San Francisco. Noble life ended by mysterious murder. The late
0: Jane Stanford
1: believes Mrs. Stanford was murdered Stanford by poison. reward. She was poisoned. Ms. Stanford's
0: dying words declare it.
1: And the weirdest part, this wasn't even the first time Jane had been poisoned.
0: You mean she was poisoned before?
1: Yeah, not even two months earlier.
0: Tale of poison causes a long An attempt to poison Mrs. Stanford. Jane Stanford, suffering from nervous prostration resulting from the effects of the poison, has been ordered abroad by her physicians.
1: So, it's January 14th, 1905. Okay, so six weeks before the Hawaii poisoning. Basically, yes. It's 9 p.m. Jane has had a very busy day, went to bed early. She calls her maid Elizabeth Richmond to her room, says that the Poland water she just drank has a peculiar taste.
0: Poland water?
1: It's basically just fancy soda water.
2: She was in the habit of pouring herself a glass of bicarbonate soda, which was a treatment she got when she was on tour visiting India. And she had, she had her maid bring her a cup of her bicarbonate soda, which she poured into her pollen in water, which is the bottle of water that they had in her mansion. She um, took a sip from that and almost immediately recognized that it tasted extremely bitter. And so she spit that water out and then induced vomiting and made herself throw up multiple times afterwards.
1: So the two maids agree that the funny-tasting water should be taken in for analysis. And Richmond takes it to a local drugstore.
0: And what did they find?
1: They analyzed both the
2: bicarbonate soda itself and the contents of her stomach. They're able to find in the bicarbonate soda the presence of strychnine.
1: But the difference is that the first time it's Nux vomica, rat poison. It's a little bit easier to get a hold of and not as concentrated. Pure strychnine is harder to find and much more deadly, but during the turn of the century, it was actually a pretty popular weapon in murder.
0: Ah, so they came to play the second time.
1: After they confirmed the presence of poison in the water, the San Francisco police opened an investigation into the poisoning, led by a detective Callenden. Meanwhile, Jane leaves her Knob Hill mansion and goes to stay in a hotel in San Jose. She's pretty distressed that someone tried to kill her, understandably.
0: Hawaii is beginning to sound better and better as a getaway.
1: And everyone around her is encouraging her to go. She must have been pretty excited to be getting away, too. Except, we found a letter to her best friend, Mae Hopkins, from right before she sails off for Hawaii. Jane says, I go very
3: unwillingly this time. For I wanted to be in Palo Alto through the beautiful spring.
1: But even weirder, she adds,
3: I cannot tell you what you will
1: know when a few more weeks have passed. What is she talking about? Remember, she's waiting for some correspondence from California right before her death. Well, it never came, but David Starr Jordan did. Oh, you mean the first president of the university?
0: Exactly. Jordan was also a close family friend to the Stanfords, or at least Mr. Stanford. Upon hearing about Jane's death, Jordan boards a steamer to Hawaii. There he hires his own doctor, Dr. Waterhouse, and along with Detective Callenton, he pretty much opens up his own private investigation of Jane's death.
1: So what did he find?
0: Well, there were some differing accounts.
1: That fits Bertha too. She initially said Jane was poisoned, but later wrote that she died of natural causes. Really? Yeah, and it just so happens that Bertha Berner was the only person present for both of Jane's poisonings
0: but why would someone want to kill Jane Stanford in the first place? I mean, who was Jane Stanford?
4: As the casket was brought through the inner doors of the church, the great organ burst into sound and the silence of death seemed to fall over the gathering.
3: So here we are at her funeral, nearly a month after her murder?
5: Yeah, and this is the place to be in 1905.
4: The woman whose death has saddened, covered millions. with a pall of fragrant California violets. The effulgent beams of the bright sun shone through the rich glass. The golds of the gorgeously decorated gold. galleries thronged to their utmost with mournings. Almost three thousand men and 3, women. Three thousand eyes were fixed upon the violet-covered. The casket. choir joined with the deep-toned organ. Not a minute was lost. Not a hitch occurred. Wow.
3: Quite the funeral.
4: The
5: way it's described in these old articles, it's like the death of a saint.
3: It's funny you should say that. Reverend Dinsmore, who gives the memorial address at Jane's funeral, says she was in close and vital touch with whatever was pure, good, and holy. And look at this. He goes on to liken her characteristics to those of God.
5: This angelic portrayal of Jane is apparent in other reflections on her life. David Starr Jordan referred to her in his book, saying that she was One of the bravest, wisest, most patient, most courageous, and most devout of all women who have ever lived.
3: And look, he even goes on to say that if his book is successful, it will expose the real Jane as a lone, sad figure of the mother of the university, strong in her trust in God and in her loyalty to her husband's purposes. These accounts really do reflect the matriarch that Jane is at Stanford today.
5: But is this figure that we know today, is this the real Jane Stanford?
3: Jane grew up in Albany, New York, in a fairly strict and controlling household. Her mother preached to Jane and her sisters the values of domesticity, motherhood, and marriage.
6: So, she was raised to be a typical Victorian age
3: woman? Yeah, she epitomized the classic Victorian matron. She believed in obedience, purity of affection, and her career of choice would ultimately be marriage. She even left school after the seventh grade to care for her ailing father.
6: So, this woman without a formal education is the founder of Stanford University?
3: Yeah, pretty much. And she saw the education she did get as more of an opportunity lost than gained. Jane felt that her time would have been better spent in the house helping her mother.
5: But how much power and control did she actually have over the creation of Stanford?
3: Quite a bit, actually. Especially after her husband Leland Sr. died. This is quite unusual for women at this time to have this
6: much power, right?
3: For the most part, yes. At the time, it was typical for wealthy women to carry on their husbands' endeavors after their deaths. Upon first glance, she was just continuing her husband's vision.
5: But there's more to it than that, isn't there?
3: Well, she had her own visions for the university that went beyond those of Leland. I talked to Stanford archaeologist Laura Jones, and she had this to say.
7: Jane Stanford does not appear to have felt that she needed Leland Sr.'s authority to act.
3: And she asserted her power even when all of her male advisors tried to intervene.
7: By the time Leland Sr. died, people were encouraging her to close the university. And Jane Stanford basically just told them, thank you for advice, but I'm, I'm going to continue on. She just decided she was going to do it.
3: She sounds like a very strong and opinionated woman, not super traditional at all. That's true, at the same time though, this unusual behavior was
7: motivated by her maternal nature. To her, the university was primarily a memorial to Leland Jr.
5: She must have felt that her authority came from her grief as a devoted mother.
3: Speaking of her grief, I noticed that in articles after Jane's death, her grief is presented as a very positive, constructive force, something that gave her motivation.
8: The memories of
5: the past and the shades of the blessed dead filled her heart. In the loneliness of her childlessness and widowhood, this was the central and supreme ambition of her soul, to found a great university. Her grief is depicted more as a longing for the past, for happy memories.
3: And Reverend Dinsmore mourns the fact that Jane couldn't have died in Palo Alto.
5: Where no doubt many of the sweetest associations of her life had
8: their center.
3: Is it not,
9: is it not haunted ground? Yes, it is haunted, this quiet fair scene. Fair as it looks and all softly green. Yet fear thou not, for the spell is thrown and the might of the shadows on me alone.
6: That's what she carved on a memorial for Leland Jr. in Palo Alto.
5: Wow, that doesn't sound like one of the sweetest associations of her life.
3: Yeah, she sounds pretty miserable. Palo Alto had its happy memories,
6: but it also was a constant reminder of the sun that was taken from her. She was haunted by the past.
7: Jane Stanford went into mourning in 1884 and never left.
3: This is Laura Jones again.
7: And she wore all black for the rest of her life.
3: Her grief seems much darker than it's depicted in memorial addresses and newspaper articles. It was. It shook her to the core and made her re-examine many aspects of her life.
5: Oh. Like her religion.
3: What do you mean? Reverend Dinsmore praised Jane for her exceedingly Catholic faith. How did she re-examine her religion?
5: The death of Leland Jr. led Jane to someone with unorthodox religious beliefs. Who?
4: Dr. J.P. Newman delivered the memorial address at the memorial services of Leland Stanford Jr.
5: Dr. Newman, a renowned preacher, spoke at Leland Jr.'s funeral. But the thing is, he's a vocal and active spiritualist.
3: Spiritualism being... that actually takes the
1: methods of science and applies them for the purposes of faith.
5: Maria Chihosh, a PhD student at Stanford University, explains that it's about... Science actually becoming a helper to talking to the dead.
1: So what does
6: Dr. Newman do? Contact Leland Jr.?
5: Well, he tries at least. He leads seances that Jane and Bertha attend together.
1: Jane felt alienated from her existing faith. She lost the sense that there was maybe a logic or a reason as to why things happen, or that there wasn't a benevolent God looking out for people.
6: So, Jane became a skeptic after her son's death?
5: She wasn't a complete skeptic, but she began to really want proof that Leland was in a better place.
1: She wouldn't have to reject her faith in any total way. She would just be adding this component of speaking to the dead on Earth.
5: She became known at the time for her spiritualist activities.
3: Didn't she attend seances pretty regularly?
5: Yeah, and she even pushed for the development of a psychic research department at Stanford. It became a major part of her life. This interest began in 1883 after Leland Jr.'s death and lasted until her death in 1905.
3: But where was it in her eulogy, in her biographies?
5: It kind of vanished. David Starr Jordan dismissed Jane's interest as purely academic, and Bertha Berner breezes over it, saying it was a short-lived fascination.
6: But they were both close with Jane. Why would they erase this part of her identity?
5: That's a great question that we really don't have the answer to. Why were Jane's experiences with spiritualism covered up?
3: So, this Jane, she seems quite far from the one talked about in eulogies, articles, and books. She wasn't really this ideal model that the university wanted.
6: She wasn't this perfect, angelic figure.
5: She was much more complex. Much more flawed.
3: And not flawed in a bad way. More like in a real way. In an ordinary person kind of way.
6: And here we are at her tomb.
5: It's such a beautiful monument. A Roman-style mausoleum made entirely of marble. Inside, three massive marble tombs dominate the room, dwarfing us and making the Stanfords feel larger than life.
6: Jane L. Stanford, born in mortality August 25, 1828, passed to immortality February 28, 1905.
3: To immortality. What an interesting way to put it.
5: Well, she does live on, both through the university and this mystery.
6: Okay, now we know more about Jane and the woman she was. But who would want to kill her?
7: Bertha, um, she becomes Jane Stanford's companion. She starts off as like a secretary.
8: Laura Jones. Campus archaeologist tells us about the first time Bertha entered Jane's life. She was standing outside Jane's son's funeral.
7: Wondering what this event is with her mother, and Jane Stanford gets out of the carriage and sees her standing there and says, if you want to come in, please come in and sit in our pew. And she sat with the family. Something struck inside her. And at the end of it, she was moved. I'm sure anyone would be moved to tell Jane if there's something I could do for you, could I help you answer condolence letters? At this time, Leland's funeral became a spectacle for the public
8: because Dr. Newman, a spiritualist known for his entertaining sermons, headlined Leland's
10: memorial. So they met under dodgy circumstances, and the one thing Bertha and Jane have in common when they first meet is their mutual belief in spirituality.
8: Such strong spirituality is often fueled by a desire to fill a void created by a loss, and Bertha happens to step right into Jane's life. But from there, she becomes Jane's companion and secretary, a person who Jane is rather dependent on.
10: They spent nearly all their time together, traveled the world together, took Bertha's time off on vacation together.
9: Time off from Bertha's work as Jane's secretary together?
8: Weird, right? In a letter Bertha wrote to Jordan in 1909, she fondly remembers how
10: twice it was arranged for me to have a vacation, actually a whole month to do as I please. And both times, after the second day, she came to my home and said she would like to spend my vacation with me.
8: Tensions between Bertha and Jane reached an all-time high late 1904, a few months before Jane's death.
7: And Bertha complains that she's tired of traveling with Jane; that she finds the traveling difficult. Bertha gets a little tired of it. At this time, Bertha's mother
8: is becoming sick.
7: You do sometimes get the sense that Bertha feels a little trapped, the kind of golden handcuff problem, that that she's enjoying this lavish lifestyle, but that she's just being dragged around by this rich old woman all over the world.
10: But Bertha wasn't the only servant in Jane's life that was close to Jane, who wanted something from her.
7: She had a Chinese butler.
10: This was Ah Wing.
7: Mrs. Stanford um, was very close to some of her Chinese employees.
11: She was a ve- she was a very and they were very loyal to her.
8: And Bertha didn't like that.
11: Private detective that investigated it wrote it off to jealous rivalry amongst Jane's house servants, which of which Bertha was one. Uh, my name is Julie Kane. I work for Heritage Services for the university. You know, they all are vying to be in the will. They all want to be in Jane's favor. There's always going to be and rivalry
10: so right after Jane died, Bertha deflects of blame to him in a San Francisco call article. Bertha claims if anybody in the house among the help who had a motive, it was all wing
9: at this time, there was immense discrimination against Chinese immigrants, and Jane's close relationship with her Chinese workers often caused a lot of controversy.
10: in another article, she claims no one could have possibly gained through her death unless it was some servant. However, if you look at the will. Alwyn receives a significantly smaller portion of money than Bertha does.
8: After Jane died, Bertha
9: got a house,
8: and fifteen thousand dollars.
9: But Bertha may not have been the only one to gain. David Starr Jordan, the president of the university, could have also played a role in Jane's mysterious death.
7: There was a lot of talk in 1905 about Jane, um, about Jane retiring, about about her becoming more difficult, about her becoming tired and unreasonable, that there is some language about that.
9: Jordan had a significantly different vision for the institution. Julia Kane speaks about their contrasting views.
11: They also bumped heads over things like money for the university, Jane wanted to build, Uh, Jordan was desperate to shore up the faculty and uh, equipment. And it
9: wasn't just about
11: money. They disagreed on many things from the very beginning, and one of the largest ones was, how did you treat the students?
9: When the Stanfords were first developing the idea of founding a university in honor of their late son, they approached Jordan due to a recommendation from the sitting president of Cornell.
10: Jordan had also previously served as the president of Indiana University and seemed to share similarities and vision with Leland Stanford for the future of their new institution.
12: Um, I'm Maggie Kimball. I'm Stanford University Archivist Emerita.
9: Then once Leland Senior passed away and Jane was left to decide how the university should be run, many conflicting opinions regarding this matter came about between her and Jordan.
11: Jordan believed in treating the students as adults and gave them a lot of leeway. Jane Stanford thought that the administration should take a more heavy-handed paternal view and really uh, not give the students as much leeway as Jordan was willing to do.
9: Um, Jordan desired to create a progressive university modeled after many other prominent institutions across the country, like John Hopkins or Harvard, one that was co-ed, science and engineering oriented, and provided greater salaries for its professors.
10: At the same time, Jane felt that she needed to maintain control of the university. After all, it was her way of memorializing her son and her husband.
12: He also was somebody who had very specific ideas about what he wanted to do, and that those didn't always fit with what Jane wanted to do.
9: Yet in the years following its founding, Stanford University Mm -hmm. became desperate for cash in order to stay open. There was even worry among Jordan and the Board of Trustees that Jane would decide to leave a substantial amount of her estate for purposes other than supporting the university.
12: So she could manage the estate and the funding in a way that university administrators and maybe Board of Trustees members didn't agree with. So it's kind of like having your whole life and money kind of controlled by your mom. It's a little difficult to do what you need to do as a university when that's the case.
9: On top of that, Jane was threatening to unseat Jordan from his presidency. A letter between Stanford professor Julius Goble to Horace Davis in 1905 illuminates the tipping point of the tension between Jordan and Jane.
10: Goebel writes that Jane regretted to have allowed herself to be persuaded by the president and had reached the final remedy, or the removal of the president.
9: With little control over the direction and finances of his university and on the brink of losing his job, Jordan had much to gain from Jane's absence.
7: There there were people who hated Jane Stanford and what she represented. Is one of them crazy enough to kill her? Probably. are you crazy enough to kill her and not take credit for it? That's the part. So if you have a political motive, I think you probably assassinate her and take credit for it. Um, if, you, if it's personal revenge, I, you know, I just don't know.
12: This is Who Killed Jane Stanford, the podcast.